John said last week, uh, it's not okay to make the preacher cry and then have him stand up and preach. Uh, and I don't know how to respond to uh, what's going on in the Middle East without crying. So, uh, hi, I am uh, Dave Hammond. I uh, get the opportunity to serve here at Elmwood as our pastoral resident and the director of Next Gen Ministries, um, which is a blast, and uh, I love it. There's something I, I don't love about it, though. Uh, I, don't, I don't have superpowers. Uh, shocker, I know. Uh, I, would love the, I would love the ability to be in two places at once. I would love the chance to be able to be playing kickball down in the gym with all the kids after church and hang out with all of you. But I can't be and uh, do everything everywhere all at once. I am limited. I am finite, just like all of you. Uh, and it stands in stark contrast to our God who is infinite, our God who is limitless, our God who has the ability to be everywhere. As we have been working our way through uh, our sermon series, considering these core identities, we've been talking about that uh, that ground us in God and influence everything we do, I've been thinking about how incredibly hard it is for finite beings to bear witness to an infinite God. Because the God who is, is the God that this world needs to know so badly. Last week, John led us through uh, a conversation of the scope of the mission field to which we are called. He talked about this idea that we are called to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We are called to reach out with this wonderful message that Jesus is king and has overcome everything. We're called to go to our neighbors who live next door. We're called to go to our neighborhoods. We're called to go to those we don't really like. We're called to go to those we don't yet know. And that God gives us the gift of himself to empower us to fulfill this incredible mission. To declare that Jesus is Lord. And all of those of us who have declared with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, all of a sudden we are made new. We are made into sons and daughters and therefore we are brothers and sisters And lastly, that means that we have been empowered to be neighbors and witnesses. Inside these four walls, I get goosebumps when I hear these ideas. I'm super excited. All of a sudden, we get this chance to run out these doors at 11.30, whatever time we're going to leave here today. We get this chance to run out and tell everybody about Jesus. And it's so exciting. And yet, when I get home... And I watch the Vikings lose another game to the referees and whatever team they're playing. Uh, Sorry. We do have a noon game. Get it going. Is that what you're saying? Got it. Uh, It's hard. it's, It's hard work to be a neighbor and a witness. It's way harder than I thought it would be to reach out to someone with this incredible news. It's difficult. And every time we do reach out to a neighbor with a loving hand and tell them this incredible news, I was saved. And they look at us like we're from Mars. You were, what? 
there's a God, it makes it a little bit harder to get up off the mat the next day, to be a neighbor and a witness. It's super easy to get discouraged. Or maybe um, you're a little bit like me, and instead of getting discouraged because you have those hard conversations and people don't listen to you, you're one of those people that instead ends up not having the conversation because you imagine how bad the conversation can go. And you get discouraged before the conversation ever happens. And you get the opportunity to say no on someone else's behalf. This, this is where I fail often. Getting discouraged before there's a reason to be discouraged. Today, as we look at 2 Corinthians 4, 1-12, uh, this morning, I hope it encourages us to go out as neighbors and witnesses by helping us both know what we're up against and to know the power that God has given us to overcome anything that stands in our way. Let's pray. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Jesus, thank you for this chance to interact together. To be your hands and feet to each other as we journey on this life. Father God, I I beg you, prepare our hearts and minds to worship you as we listen to your word today. Holy Spirit, change us. God, thank you for showing us your love by sending your son, the second person of the triune God, to die that we may live. We love you, Jesus. Amen. One of the things I love doing, I love doing, I get the chance to do all the time, is to help uh, my kids become better than they were the day before. We talk about this idea of being a better man. Being a better woman. Just this idea that we're, we're going to get better every day. I love that chance. And it's one of the things uh, I'm growing in how to do it better. They're growing in how to be better. It's great. We grow together. I take the opportunity to join in whenever Josiah joins a soccer team to help out or to coach. And uh, there's all kinds of things that because I've spent years on a soccer field, I can teach. But there's one idea that every coach needs to prepare their team with. And I'm still working on how to teach this to all of Josiah's soccer teams. Every team needs to be aware of the fact that when they go out on the field, there's going to be another team on the field also trying to win. Again, news alert for the Vikings. There's another team that's going to try to do the things that you're doing. That's why you have to pass the ball well. It's why you have to control the ball when it's passed to you. It's why you have to move to get open. Or that other team will take the ball, will score, and we will lose. This is basic sports ball 101. It's no different when we go out on mission. 
It is no different. We need to know what we're up against. We need to know that there's another team out there. There's a whole lot of scripture that points to the ways and the things that we are up against. Uh, but I think that as we look at 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 12, one of the first things that shines out is we are up against the deceptive power of the evil one, both as followers of Jesus and as those who don't yet follow Christ. Paul sets this idea up really well for us, I think, in verse 2. If we read verse 2, it says, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I don't know. This is a bit of uh, speculation. I, don't, I have no clue uh, where Paul did his morning devotions that morning. No idea, but I think that he might have been spending a little bit of time in Genesis 1 through 3. As we read this passage that Paul wrote, uh, we are going to see shining incredibly brightly all over it ideas from Genesis 1 through 3. It's just, it's all there, and it's amazing. As Paul talks about the kind of of ministry that he has turned his back on, he uses four different words. Secret, shameful, deception, or crafty, is another way to translate that word, and, and distortion, or to distort. And these uh, four words are the same themes that are used to describe the ministry of the snake, the anti-ministry of the snake in Genesis 3. Last week, John talked about the idea, we're all evangelizing something. Whether it's purple power or we're evangelizing uh, an amazing food that we eat or evangelizing the darkness that we serve like the snake. The snake is just a minister for chaos and darkness in those first few chapters of the Bible. For those of you not familiar, if you, uh, you look at it, this is a big library of books, 66 books. If you open right to the beginning, we're going to see the creation of the world. Now, if I'm on page 1, I get Genesis 1. Page 2, everything is good in Genesis 1. God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Genesis, page 2, right at the bottom, the fall. Things fall apart on page 2 of the Bible. The second page of the text is where it all goes off the rails. God asks Adam and Eve, hey, can you rule and reign on my behalf here? He gives them all of the resources that they could ever need. Here's this beautiful garden. Eat whatever you want. It's, and I'll just be with you. I just ask that you make the choice. Don't eat from that one tree, just one tree. Eat everything else. Just make the choice to not follow a different way. Just follow my voice. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some theologians say it's because God wants them to trust what he says is good as opposed to try to search out what's good on their own. Which really should be fine. God's there with him. If they have a question, they ask God and then they just listen. It's pretty nice. They, they have all the resources. If they need to do something, they do it. But all is not well in the world because there's a snake that wants to ruin God's plan. And the snake slithers up to Eve in Genesis 3, full of craftiness. He tries to convince her of some secret knowledge that God has that he isn't giving to them. 
He distorts God's words and twists a half-truth into a lie. And then he encourages her and leads her into a life of shame, no longer being in right relationship with God or with her husband. Secret, shameful, deception, distortion. These are the ways of the snake. And when both Adam and Eve choose to walk the way of the snake, they realize that all is not right, and then they hid from the sight of God. As time goes on, that same choice, that choice, do I follow the words of God or do I choose the ways of the snake, it is felt in every single human heart. If I took time, we could spend time to look at all 66 books and find the ways of the snake throughout. I just want to jump at two. One, the life of of one of the greatest kings in Israel, King David. He's got a good name. I might have been named after him, maybe. Uh, David, when he first come on, comes on the scene, is just a little shepherd boy, and he's up against a giant, Goliath. And Goliath is described in snaky ways. He has scaly armor. He twists truths into lies. And David destroys Goliath, Chopping off his head, becoming a snake crusher. Boo, Goliath, yay, David, one snake story. Turn the page on David's story, though, and you find David failing in a different battle with the snake. All of a sudden, he sees what he thinks is good. And he takes what isn't his. And then he hides what he's done and covers covers it up in the story of his adultery with Bathsheba. These are the exact actions of Adam and Eve, seeing what they thought is good, taking it, and then hiding. David is a a snake crusher on one day and then failing to the snake on another. Snakiness continues throughout the story of the scriptures. (laughs) Uh, John the Baptist, who is steeped in scripture uh, in his whole life, John the Baptist is baptizing at the River Jordan. And as he's baptizing, some Pharisees and Sadducees show up. And he needs to, like, throw some shade their way. And so as he does, no, I'm not going to use a different accent. As he does, he calls them snakes. You brood of vipers who ruined you or who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. He knows how, <laughs> he knows how to throw shade from a biblical standpoint. Use the snakiness. Snakiness is everywhere in the scriptures. In these verses we're looking at this morning, Paul is saying that there's a propensity to minister and proclaim the gospel in snake-like ways. That's happening in his day. And there are ways that that snakiness is still around today. It's a trap we can all fall into. The power of the snake calls out to us and says, let's make being a neighbor and a witness just a little bit easier. Let's just twist truth just a little bit. Making it a little bit easier for us by twisting the truth. Don't tell everybody the fact that there's punishment for those who walk in disobedience to God. For their entire lives. Don't don't tell people that there's punishment. Just focus on God's love. Twist the truth just a little bit. 
or twist the truth and emphasize the parts of the Bible that encourage the ideas of life and health and prosperity and wealth. Don't talk about that incredible promise from King Jesus that said, in this life you will have trouble. Don't talk about that. Talk about health and wealth. No one will look at you like you're from Mars if you're telling them how to have a good life. Twist the truth just a little bit, says the snake. Use biblical language in order to get power as opposed to using biblical language to point people to Jesus. Twist the truth just a little bit. That's all you have to do. It'll make it a whole lot easier. In an age where you can take a soundbite, no one should go online and grab that and make a short out of it. It's a bad idea. For my sake, please. For Elmwood's sake, please. But it's important for us to think about the ways of the snake so that we can recognize how we have done this in our own lives. It's important for us to say, oh, I totally did that when I was talking to Brad. Oh, that time that I was talking to Jesse. I totally did that. But we get the chance now. When we recognize, when we recognize snaky ways in our own ministry to repent, to turn away from them, to turn to God. We live in a time after which God said, hey, hey, this is good. I love you, world. I'm going to send my son to die so that you can live. So whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We might, sure, it might make it a little easier to witness, sure, I guess, to be a witness or a neighbor. It might, it might make the message of the gospel more palatable, okay? We might be able to avoid a little bit of social ostracization, yes. But if we do, we won't be inviting people into the life-giving way of Jesus. And we won't be pointing people to God, we will just be pointing people to whatever comfort we were peddling when we twisted the truth. As we prepare to be neighbors and witnesses, as we walk out those doors, there is a power that deceives us, the power of the snake that deceived Adam and Eve. And we need to find a way to fight against it. Not like King David, who fought and won one day and fought and failed another. We need to find a way to crush the snake's head forever. So that we can go out and love our neighbors, love our enemies, as Jesus did. The ancient serpent and the darkness for whom he ministers is the very thing we're up against as we go out to be neighbors and witnesses. If only, let me just say, if only the the snake was the only thing we were up against... As we attempt to be neighbors and witnesses, I think it, would, it might actually be a, a good news, but uh, the deceptive power that affects us, we're up against the deceptive power of the evil one, uh, doesn't just affect us, but also affects those whom we're trying to reach with the good news. We are not the only ones who are deceived and can be deceived. Everyone interacts with this power. As people are trying to hear the good news, as we are trying to proclaim the good news, that same snake can stop people from hearing it. Going back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4 this time. 
And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled from those who are perishing. The God of this age, quick, real quick, who's the God of this age? Three guesses. The snake, the devil, right? Okay, so both guesses were correct. Well done. Well, yeah, yeah, three. I didn't need three guesses, only two. Good work. The God of this age, where was I? <laughs> Trombone. Uh, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The very nature of those who do not believe are those who have been made blind by the power of the God of this age. The snake doesn't just throw us off our game. It actually blocks other people from hearing the good news. And I hate it. I hate it. I don't have have any other words for it. I heard this story recently uh, of a farmer. He went out to like put seed into his field. And as he went, he, he threw out the seed and some of it fell on like a path that the farmer had made. Others of it fell on some soil that had some rocks in it. Others of it fell on some soil that had some weeds. And some of it fell on some good soil that produced a crop. I love it when I can just like reference a sermon that someone gave earlier this year. Right? Like, this is an incredible sermon that just points out there are stuff that gets in the way of producing good fruit. The weeds, the worries of the world that choke out life. The rocks stop deep roots from forming so that when difficult times come, the plants fall over. And off the path, the birds come and snatch the word away. Satan comes and snatch the word, snatches the word away. He blinds those. He snatches the word away from those we are trying to reach. These people we're trying to love with this incredible news end up blind. I think it's no wonder that the gospel writers, those who recorded the life of Jesus we have in scripture, record over and over again Jesus healing blind people. These healings are an incredible physical reminder that there's a spiritual blindness that so many of us have lived through. I mean, before Jesus broke through and showed me his amazing grace, I was blind. Part of my story is that I grew up going to church. I grew up sitting in pews. I grew up uh, drawing on little cards for our youngest Presbyterians. I, I drew all kinds of things during the sermon. I went to Sunday school. My parents taught Sunday school. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't hear the gospel. So I've had to go to people that went to church with me. Did they proclaim the gospel? Did they tell me about the love of God? That is in Christ Jesus. And over and over again I hear. There were many men and women. Who told me about God's love. In a myriad of ways. Dave you were just blind. And didn't have ears to hear. And it. Makes me sad. Because I was blind. Until God opens my eyes. So that I could see. There's a reason. There's a reason, people who are at the edge, there's a reason why the first song that we did at the edge was Amazing Grace. Because it's the story of my life. Because I once was blind, but now I see. 
And it's the story of so many of our lives. Praise be to God that some of us had the chance to see and God help those that are blind. So far as neighbors and witnesses, uh, as witnesses, wow, not weaknesses, neighbors and witnesses, we are up against a snake. It's going to encourage us to follow his snaky ways. So don't we do, we don't do a very good job of sharing the gospel. Uh, we're up against that same stake, blinding the eyes of those who don't yet see. And if that isn't enough, just wait, there's more. Ron Papil is still alive. and No, he's not. He's dead. Ron Papil, anybody? Ron, does anyone remember the infomercials with the knives? Just wait, there's more. I've been told by some people that if you have to explain your jokes, that they're not good jokes. I humbly disagree. Ron Papil, there, just wait, there's more. <sighs> there's so much we're up against as we try to tell people the good news. The last big hurdle that Paul points us to uh, is a little bit deeper into the text. It's in verse 6. I promise you it's there, and it's beautiful and scary when we see it. Verse 6, which is a page turn in my Bible. uh, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1. First thing God does, let there be light. Right, okay. Uh, made Made his light shine in our hearts. There it is. There's the hurdle. What? So the hurdle is beautiful because it's written in Hebrew parallelism. In our English language, when we try to like make a point, we use rhyming words. Roses are, violets are, sugar is, and so are, right? This is how we make a point is we use the rhyming words back and forth. But there are so many other ways, so many other conventions we could use if we just spent a little time. <laughs> right? We've got alliteration, assonance, repetition, rhythm, floating opposites, even the volume of a speaker's voice from really quiet to incredibly loud can be ways we can get points across in the Hebrew writings, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the way that Hebrew authors got point across is they used parallelism. They used two lines that worked together. Lines that worked together something like, a flower is one color, another flower is another color. Parallel lines. Strip out the English, it still works. It's kind of nice. This thing has this attribute. Interestingly enough, you have the same attribute. Parallel lines. Paul says, God said, let light shine out of darkness. And God made light shine in our hearts. Light shines out of darkness. Light shines in our hearts. Paul declares through using parallelism that our hearts are as dark as the darkness from which the world was made. Where there should be life, there is an empty void and there's nothing but death. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your, transgr- in, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, 
gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. If fighting against our weakness of being manipulated by the snake and other people's blindness wasn't enough, when God sends us out into the world to tell the world the best news the world has ever heard, God loves you and has proven it by dying on your behalf. He's asking us to go speak to spiritually dead people. We're supposed to go out and animate corpses. Last time I checked, dead people don't respond well when you tell them that God... Dead people don't respond. They don't stand up at all. And so it's easy, I think, for us to lose heart when we look at all we're up against. When we look at that team that's against us, it's easy for us to lose heart because it's incredibly hard to overcome such incredible odds. Hmm. But a part of the good news, a part of, a part of this thing we're trying to tell people is that the power of God is available to all who believe. The power that raised Christ from the dead is available to me, is available to you. This incredible power. We don't have to lose heart because if we have repented from our sins and turned our life over to Jesus... Jesus forgives you. Jesus gives you a place in his family. Jesus sets you free with the power to do immeasurably more than you could ask or even imagine. The solution to these overwhelming odds that we've been talking about in sharing the good news with others is actually the good news itself for us. We have the power of God in us to overcome anything that might make us lose heart. We've already seen it in verse 6. If we just continue reading the littlest bit. Where are we? Turn the page. For God said, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. No matter how dark, broken, and blind our hearts were, God has overcome that. He made light shine out of nothing. Sometimes when I think about God making light shine out of nothing, I think, oh, it's a little bit like the sun shining into space. But space has things in it. It has dust. It has atoms floating around every once in a while. The light that God said, go shine into nothing, is more like how the universe is expanding into, I don't know what, nothing. God made light shine there when he first said, let there be light. God can make light shine here. And God can make light shine in our neighbor's hearts as well. He isn't going to have a problem overcoming darkness inside of you and me. Just as the spirit hovered over the deep in Genesis 1 and brought life, life can be made in each of us. We can be reborn. Hmm. So while it can be discouraging to think about all of the ways that we can fail, as we witness to the good news, it's wonderfully comforting to know 
that it isn't our responsibility. It's the power of God's responsibility to make people new. Back and forth, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He had an incredible relationship with them. In his first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 3, we see these words. I planted, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Our job is to spread seed. Our job is to spread news, and God is in charge of the rest. Our job is to love people as if they are going to be brothers and sisters for the rest of eternity. And let God figure out how to bring them home. So one last thing in this passage that gives me incredible hope. Because uh, we've touched a lot in the beginning of the passage, but there's more. Just wait. There's more. In Genesis 2, at the beginning of all the things, God makes water cover over all the dirt earth. In Genesis 2, that's, that's, that's the story. You got God, there's just dirty, gross, nothing. And God's like, I need some water. We're going to make some fields happen. We're going to make some plants. We're going to make some animals. But what God does is he sends water over all of it to make mud. And then out of the dirt, out of that mud, God doesn't make mud pies like a two-year-old. God instead crafts the first human. There's a reason why uh, human and the Latin word for dirt, hummus, sound so similar. Because humans came from hummus. We are animated dirt. Genesis 1 to 2 says that we are vessels made of dirt created and designed to carry the image of God to the world. So as we read in verse 7, Paul says that we are jars of clay. And there's an incredible treasure in those jars of clay. He's just saying something that's been around and in the ethos of the Israelite people for a thousand years at least. This has always been the plan. God uses Jars of clay to show off his power to the world. When we consider the power of God that made light shine into the void, we need to remember that we don't need to pretty ourselves up to show off that power to the world. God uses dirt jars, like me, to show off his power to the world. Light shining in dirt-made vessels Always the plan. We don't need to clean ourselves up. In fact, if we try to make ourselves look good, we might just distract from the actual story that God's trying to tell. If we're supposed to be trying to help people see Jesus as the one who loves the broken, if people don't know, hey, I am really, really fairly messed up, I am broken, then how are people going to see Jesus? If we're supposed to be shining and showing off the fact that Jesus loves the lowly but doesn't 
people don't see the fact that I'm lowly or that you're lowly, how in the world are they going to see God and his love for the lowly? If we're supposed to be declaring God loves sinners, but it's not blatantly obvious to our neighbors that we think of ourselves as sinners. How are people going to know the love of God? How are people going to know and see Jesus? I promise you, no weakness on the part of the vessels is going to get in the way of showing off the beauty of the power of the thing inside. I promise you, this is why Paul can say that he, what's the list, right? He says he's hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, given over to death. But he can say he's not crushed. He's not in despair. He's not abandoned. He's never destroyed. It's as if our earthen vessels, us, is being supported from the inside by a structure that is stronger than this world has ever seen. A a structure that might have created the world in the first place, so it makes sense that it should be stronger than tungsten. Stronger than diamonds. There's nothing that is outside that can press on our earthen vessels that can ever destroy us because of the power of the one that is inside of us. Now, uh, earlier someone asked, Dave, what's the sermon about? I said, snakiness. We need to get back to snakiness just for a second. We got to get back there. Because we need to still overcome that. We got to overcome the snake somehow. Maybe the best news yet is that when Adam and Eve failed, God brought them forward, brought the snake forward, told the man and the woman, here's your consequences for your sin. And he said to the snake, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's power is shown off in Jesus, the ultimate snake crusher. He's the one who, as Isaiah said, uh, was uh, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took on the snake and destroyed its power. He took on death. And destroyed its power on our behalf. That same moment when he hung on the cross, Jesus became the ultimate snake crusher. And because he is the ultimate snake crusher, we don't lose heart. We we don't have to. People often give up, not because they don't have like the knowledge to do the thing. Not because they don't have like the, the hands and the body to pull it off. They give up because they lose heart. Because it's hard. I'm not going to stand up and tell you that being a neighbor and a witness isn't hard. Because it is. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I've seen you do hard things. Which I have. And so I know you can do hard things. I'm going to stand up here and tell you you can do hard things because we follow the ultimate snake crusher. Who has destroyed the power of the snake for us. Lastly, 
because Jesus is the ultimate snake crusher, we can embrace our weaknesses. We have this incredible opportunity to be those dirt vessels that carry the power, the all-surpassing power of God. We don't have to hide our weaknesses. We can embrace it, and we can cry out to our neighbors, hey, I'm but dust. I, I messed up. Let me introduce you to a God that loves me and loves you. Because he's the one holding me together. God's power is shown off in a moment that looked like incredible weakness when God hung on a Roman torture device and died. You're shining your own power, your own beauty, just going to get in the way of God shining his power through you. If you don't know how to shine your weakness, it's okay. It's a new idea. I get it. Let me introduce you to one way. One way where we can embrace our weakness. We can, we can all actually do it this morning together. One way we can embrace our weakness is to come to this table together. Take bread and juice representing Jesus' body and blood. The only way to come to this table is by coming to this table, embracing, I am weak. So as we walk up this line, all of a sudden, we're just declaring to the world, I don't have it together. I need me some Jesus in order to make it through today, to make it through another week, to be reminded, I needed me some Jesus so that I could see. (laughs) Weak dirt jars of Elmwood. I invite you, come to the table and be nourished by Christ. As I invite you to the communion table, please, let's take a few moments of silent confession and reflection.